science. Hello and welcome to Love and Science. This is the podcast version of the radio show on BCFM 93.2 FM in Bristol. And of course the podcast and the radio station go all around the world. So wherever you're listening, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm Andrew Glester and I was joined in the studio by Josh Warren and Lucy McGowan, who just received some exciting news yeah i have this week actually slightly terrifying news i mean my imposter syndrome is through the roof right now but um yeah i received the news last week that i've been invited to present my research in westminster at the house of commons in um the stem for britain competition which is kind of uh (laughs) flattering nice and terrifying (laughs) i mean it sounds brilliant what does it mean um so there's a a competition uh which is set up for kind of early career researchers so people doing masters uh phds maybe a kind of early postdoc or even people working in industry and things like that and this competition covers uh there's four fields so there's like you know physics and maths chemistry engineering um and biology i think something like that I'm obviously in the biology category, um, and you can basically apply uh, by writing an abstract, summarising your research and the impact of it, and uh, kind of why it's interesting, and um, try to make it sound like you could explain it to people of a lay audience. And it sounds like I've uh, managed to do that because they've picked me. <laughs> so yeah. I now have to uh, make a poster which kind of summarises my research um, in a very sort of lay engaging way and uh, take that over to Westminster and present that to MPs and also some judges from the STEM for Britain panel okay. um, next month so I've not got long to actually do it. Is the suggestion that MPs need it in lay language? <laughs> I mean it's I think it's more kind of trying to encourage uh, kind of good science communication and also okay. kind of helping kind of parliamentarians to understand what sort of research early career research they're doing at the moment and also to try and recognize um young people in science and and their work so um it's quite uh, an honor to be oh, selected but i am yeah i'm petrified <laughs> you'll be fine <laughs> yeah uh, sounds good you're, yeah. A, you're a very skilled communicator lucy you, you uh, I, I am when best. i'm hiding in a dark room with you two but <laughs> <laughs> in the real world it's a bit more scary isn't it <laughs> well uh, bcfm's own lucy mcgowan going to tell Bob Boris Johnson, what's what on the science front? I look forward I to hearing. I think he's that. coming, but yeah, we can try. <laughs> um, he leads a lesson or two on climate change, I believe. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. But that's not your science. It's what, not my science. What, no. what will you actually be telling them about? Um, I work on uh, bone and how it's formed and how you end up with brittle bones, so osteoporosis. Um, and I look at different genes which are related to bone formation and uh, the way bones heal once they've broken. And I'm studying how the immune system interacts with bone uh, during fracture repair and also whether the genes that are related to brittle bones in humans are also related to the immune system and how all these things interact cool. and how we can make better sort of therapies to prevent. Do you know, when I'm, whenever I'm thinking about biology and the way that our minds work, I always think, I need to ask Lucy about this. <laughs> have, you, have, have you broken many bones? Is there a reason you've chosen to Touch do Touch wood, it? right? <laughs> Never 
broken the bow. And although I, I did, actually. I did slip in canteen whilst jigging along to a band a few weeks ago, and I think I broke my rib because it still really hurts. Right. But uh, I don't know because I didn't go to the doctors. But that was really, really painful for about three weeks. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of important things, never broken. No, not okay. yet. Well, in, there are some important science news which come into your world of expertise a little bit, which is coronavirus. We'll come to that yeah. later in the show. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to hold you liable for anything you say. Um, Josh. Hello. Any stories that have caught your eye this week? Yeah, there's, uh, there is a space mission that is about to launch. Uh, yeah, there is. There is. <laughs> we like space missions on the show. <laughs> we do. Um, there is a spacecraft called the Solar Orbiter, or SOLO for short, which is due to be launched from uh, the Kennedy Space Centre at Cape Canaveral in, uh, on the 9th of February. Um, so it, it's about a week's time. And its mission is to orbit the sun and gather some more information about some of the strange things that we see the sun doing. Like, for example, it's going to study uh, some of the solar wind that the, that the sun produces, the, the, the sun's magnetic fields, how that affects the solar winds, uh, how those solar winds affect Earth. Um, so the, 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 the sun goes through phases at this 11-year sort of activity cycle, and we don't really know why, and that is going to explore a little bit about that. But one of the coolest things I think it's going to do is going to be able to take really uh, cool high-resolution photographs of the surface of the sun. Amazing. Um, and I don't know if anyone's seen it recently. There was, been, there was a cool little... Uh, animation of of the surface of the sun and it looked as if it looked to me as if they were little like skin cells or little amoeba sort of crawling around on the surface yeah um are you talking about the image and video from hawaii telescope i believe i am yes, yes. i believe that's what it, yes yeah, uh, if, it, if you want to have a look at that just google the most detailed picture of the sun's surface yes but but that picture the the little shapes you can see convulsing and moving around they're actually about the size of texas right Whoa. <laughs> wow and um this this new orbiter is is going to hope to take some photographs and take some video of the sun but be able to uh, resolve details that are only um, tens of kilometres apart, as opposed to yeah. uh, you know, hundreds of kilometres. And, and yeah, it's 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 uh, going to be really detailed uh, pictures, which is going to be nice. Yeah, amazing. Is it a European Space Agency? Yes, this is mission? the uh, this is the European Space Agency mission. Yes, which which I I hope we're now a part of. Well, I, I, the UK Space Agency has historically been a large part of this mission. It's a mission which is sort of decades old in the planning isn't mm. it and uk space agency very much been part of it um and it, it will launch this sunday or from our point of view in the early hours of next monday about four yes. o'clock in the morning yeah the night time. of the ninth to the tenth yeah. <laughs> where's right? it going from it's it florida florida yeah yeah Cape Canaveral there, where a lot of the rockets go from. I really, I really need to go there. I need to find some environmentally friendly way of arriving. Well, you could there. go to it's the other one in Kazakhstan or somewhere. Oh yeah, that's quite hard really, to get to. Yes, yeah. but yeah, I mean, not to... that that's environmentally friendly either. But you could make no, a road trip out of I've it. I've got an electric car. I don't Yay, mean to. Uh, go. I'll go with you, Andrew. We could team up. <laughs> <Should> we, <laughs> we, could, we could do a, a, okay. a space road trip. Let's plan that. And while <laughs> we do, it's getting a little bit cold out. I mean, it's still quite warm for the time of year, isn't it? It's yeah, almost like yeah. it was snowing this time last year, right? You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM 93.2 FM. Now, 
there's one big story in the news at the moment which is science related and as it's, it is of course the coronavirus Lucy tell us all we need to know about it no I'm joking, <laughs> I'm joking. there's a story in uh, the Guardian which is researchers make strides in race to create coronavirus vaccine yeah so uh, I will say off the top of this, I'm not a virologist, I'm not someone that studies viruses, but I do study the immune system, so I can uh, give a good go at explaining this. So the way viruses work is they have uh, their own kind of copies of uh, their own sort of genetic material. And the purpose of every living thing in the world, whether it's human or a virus or bacteria or um, a plant, is to reproduce, to make copies of itself or to make children. So that's what the virus wants to do. But viruses don't have the machinery to make copies of their genetic material. So they need to hijack other living things and use their genetic machinery. So you can imagine this like being um, having a recipe for a cake and you want to make your cake, but you've not got the ingredients, you've not got a kitchen. So instead of uh, me not making the cake, I'm going to break into your house and use your kitchen, <laughs> and use your flour and your sugar and make a cake and then also uh, hit you in the face and... You know, oh. try to kill you. Um, I mean, the cake bit sounds good. Yeah, the cake bit sounds good, but then I try to kill you, right? So <laughs> yes. that's what viruses are doing. Um, <laughs> that's a really violent end to that analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it starts off with cake and happiness and ends with, uh, yeah, death. Um, <laughs> but not all viruses are, are quite that aggressive. However, the coronavirus is quite a nasty one. Um, so it's related to the uh, SARS virus, which kind of caused a lot of uh, deaths in kind of the early 2000s. Um, and the reason it's so deadly is because uh, our immune system can't uh, recognise it and it can't kill it in advance of it entering our cells. Um, and it, when it's in our cells, it causes quite a lot of damage. So it enters the lungs. Um, and it, the way it does this is it has it, a protein base. It looks like a big ball with spiky um, protrusions coming off it. And those spiky protrusions are what allows it to enter the cells in our lungs. So those spiky protrusions will recognise a specific protein on the surface of our lung cells. And it will dock onto that and then it will climb into our lungs. And that's where it starts making copies of itself. And when it hijacks your lung cells, that causes the symptoms that can make you very poorly and cause pneumonia. So how do we uh, prevent the virus? Well, a vaccine is a really good way. Um, and actually, we made pretty big strides in kind of developing a SARS vaccine back when the pandemic happened um, nearly 20 years ago. Um, but when the kind of pandemic was over, a lot of interest in that kind of dispersed and the money dispersed and we never actually got there. Um, so the Chinese um, scientists have released the sequence of the uh, coronavirus genome, which basically means the recipe book that the coronavirus uses to make copies of itself. And uh, we've now got scientists from all over the world trying to create a vaccine which will basically... Um, find a bit of the virus which is shown on the surface and that bit of the virus our immune system will see when it enters the body and before it climbs into our lungs where it's kind of hidden from the immune system the immune system will recognize this immediately and kill the virus so it never actually gets to our lungs um unfortunately the coronavirus is a bit too different from the SARS virus to kind of use an exact blueprint from the kind of developments from back then so it's about uh, the protein which we can actually create a vaccine against is only about 70% conserved which um, isn't really good enough to create a really good immune response against it so they're kind of starting with the information they have on the SARS virus and the vaccine they developed for that they've now got the uh, genetic sequence for the coronavirus uh, which is a recipe book 
to create um, a better vaccine targeted towards that. But the real lesson here is that pandemics can happen whenever and we have very little control over them when they happen other than quarantining people and trying to keep them alive. In terms of the spread of it, the best way we can possibly stop it is by uh, giving people a vaccine. However, if we're not developing a vaccine in advance, then um, we're not prepared when it happens. So we need to be able to um, kind of stay ahead of the curve. So... Um, well, that, that's um, a really helpful way of yeah. explaining it. Thank you, because um, it, it doesn't—it's it, such a sort of big topic. Yeah, it's interesting to know the science behind it. Yeah, mm. um, is it—is that? I, don't worry if you don't know. But is—is <laughs> it—is it sort of when something like this happens? There's who are these scientists who are behind it? Is it university scientists? Who are they? I mean, it's people from various. Uh, kind of places so you have some university scientists but also government funded uh, scientists so people maybe at public health england will be looking into this i think public health england will generally be looking to prevent the spread more than anything um but then the nih in america is the one are the ones that are really working on this at the moment so that's the national institute of health is that right have i made that up i think it is um <laughs> this is a, a huge organization in america um and they have lots of scientists that are actively all the time working on how to develop better vaccines um but now the chinese um scientists have released the uh genetic sequences for the virus these people can then kind of use their resources to to create a really well targeted vaccine um the problem is it will take time to create something that works and also human trials uh, do take a bit of time too and historically with pandemics they just kind of burn themselves out almost mm. um they're, they're quite bad for a, a little you know a few weeks or a few months and then they just disappear as fast as they came and yeah. we don't really know why that happens um but the yeah the the real problem is staying ahead of uh, viruses and predicting when they're going to um change and become more deadly and enter into human populations because at the moment there's a bit of controversy but it's thought that these viruses either came from snakes or from bats when uh, you'll have probably heard a lot of uh, viruses have come from bats in the past like uh, ebola came from bats um so they're a big Sorry, how does it transfer from bats into humans? Well, this is because of evolution. So our uh, DNA is well conserved between bats and humans. Um, so although we look nothing like a bat, when we look in our um, genome, in our genetic makeup, a lot, I don't know the exact percentage for bats, but for example, even with a, a fish, you are 75% conserved. So um, and bats are mammals, so you can imagine it's probably in the realms of like 80 to 85, I'd be guessing, maybe even a bit more. Um, so the fact that there's a lot of conservation between the genes means that the virus sees the same proteins to get into the body. So if it develops in bats and it can hop across from bats to humans or bats to pigs or bats to... Uh, birds or anything like that um, and eventually if it jumps into a human and it's a particularly bad version of the virus um, it can spread very quickly that way mm. uh, am i right in saying that we've just caught this really early and the reason i say it is because I'm, and i don't mean to sound insensitive to, uh, at all here but but only and I, again i say only but only 360 odd people have died of this and when you consider the the density of people in in in, in Wuhan and in mm. China uh, more or widely, it's that's that seems as though we've 
caught it really I early. Think the control is is actually going fairly well. Um, however, we haven't really quite yet got a grasp of how easily it's spreading, how it is spreading, and also when the virus really takes hold in terms of symptoms versus actually being contagious. So it's thought at the moment, um, and actually the first case has been established of this, that the virus can transmit from person to person before they have symptoms. So you might feel perfectly well and be carrying the virus, um, and then a week later you'll start to feel poorly. And in that week, you could have already transmitted it. So it won't be for another couple of weeks until we understand exactly how it's transmitted, when it's transmitted, how to contain it best. Um, but I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. However, the people that are being admitted as patients at the moment and being tested positive the virus will probably have already been in their bodies for a couple of weeks, um, so it's quite hard to understand. It could, it could get worse before it gets better, basically. But they're doing quite a good job of keeping it contained within China. I know it's spreading, but it's not exploding across the world. It's just kind of creeping yeah. through at the moment. Yeah, because I, I, I got a text yesterday <clears throat> to say that if you have any contact with, with China and you experience <laughs> symptoms, flu-like symptoms, don't go to your doctor. Yeah. Here's a number to ring. Yeah. And I thought that's just... A, it, it, obviously, it's a perfectly... Who uh, sent you reasonable. that text? <laughs> I don't know. It must have just been some uh, NHS number going through. Yeah, but yeah. just some automatic text. Oh. But um, but um, that, it, it's really right that we're so uh, yeah. cautious of it. The, the World Health Organization um, has done an excellent job of establishing a lot of protocols for this sort of thing. Um, and they've learned a lot of lessons from SARS and from Ebola that they're actively putting into practice here. Um, and by coordinating on like a global scale with governments, yeah. they're actually doing quite a good job of containing it. But yeah, at the moment, I don't think we have enough grasp of how it's transmitting to be able to say it's not too bad yet because it could get worse before it gets better. In fact, it probably will. But yeah. what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> well, quite a lot, by the sounds of things. Um, thank you very much for that. For that. And, uh, well, coronavirus is going to be a story that continues to run and run. We'll probably cover it again on the show. Hopefully, before too long, they'll have found that vaccine. And this is something rather special. We have an interview with Frank DeWin. Frank DeWin is a former commander of the International Space Station. How cool is that? And he's going to be here on BCFM very shortly. He's a European Space Agency astronaut currently serving as the head of the European Astronaut Centre of the European Space Agency. And he was the first European to command the International Space Station. He caught up with Tai Singh of Bristol's own The Cosmic Shed podcast to... Talk about all things space, the European Space Agency, and this being Time and Sing, the Cosmic Shed, and Frank DeWin. Of course, they talked about Star Trek too. Four, three, two, one. Booster ignition and lift off. Lift off of the Soyuz rocket transporting Roman Romanenko, Frank DeWin, and Bob Thirst to double the population of the International Space Station. first uh, short duration mission in 2002, which was basically an exchange of the, the Soyuz uh, mission. Uh, it's called the Odyssey mission. And then afterwards, in 2009, I flew a long-duration space mission to the International Space Station uh, when our Columbus module was already up there. And in the second half of that mission, I had uh, 
the privilege to become the first European commander of the ISS. I've always been a very big fan of Star Trek. It's uh, one of the reasons uh, that I was attracted to space, uh, actually. Uh, and uh, more particularly, I'm, I'm a very big fan of Star Trek The Next uh, Generation, which, by the way, has been uh, also the, the example for my poster of my mission, uh, Expedition 21 on the International Space Station. That's amazing. And how long were you in space for in total? Just under 200 days, 199 days, actually, to be exact. That's incredible. And did you always have an interest in science? I had an interest in, in science and technology uh, from when I was young. Uh, it's also what I wanted to study, become an engineer, uh, mathematics. Uh, but also, yes, Star Trek certainly played a big role in that, uh, the fascination of space. And also when I was in the uh, high school, uh, it was the time of the big discoveries, uh, supernovas, black holes, a lot of popular science uh, around that. And that combined, of course, with, uh, with Star Trek uh, really made me dream a lot about space. Could you talk to us about what the ESA is working on at the moment? ESA is always uh, is working on uh, new science missions. Uh, we have a, a couple of missions that are flying for the moment, uh, Bepo Colombo, for example. Uh, in exploration, we are uh, going to launch our ExoMars mission next year. Uh, first mission that's going to drill under the surface of uh, Mars. Really exciting. Uh, but we are, of course, also working on the future of human spaceflight. We are working with our uh, NASA colleagues to participate in the Gateway and to start sustainable exploration of the lunar surface. And we hope that in the next decade, uh, the first European astronauts can fly not only to the ISS, but can fly to the moon. Science and science fiction has always had a very symbiotic relationship where sometimes science fiction influences scientists and also vice versa sci-fi shows try and embrace the latest science. Is there anything that you and your colleagues have been inspired by in Star Trek when planning these missions? When planning these missions, I, I think it's a little bit uh, more difficult. I can, cannot see this uh, directly. But of course, there are a lot of things when you look to Star Trek that somehow we are trying to mimic. Uh, think, for example, uh, recycling. Yeah? Uh, if we will go to uh, further destinations, the moon, Mars, in a sustainable way, we will have to recycle all our food. Okay, it will not be a replicator like we see on Star Trek. Uh, I think we are too far away from that. But nevertheless, it will be the same principle. We will break down the human waste, uh, all the waste that we produce, into molecules, and we will build them up again in different molecules that we can use again to drink and, uh, and to eat. So certainly, yes, the, the principles that we find in uh, a lot of these uh, science fiction uh, movies, and especially in Star Trek, is uh, things that we are working on. Fantastic. And just looking around us, you've got posters here of like some of the ESA's kind of greatest hits, if you will, from the solar orbiter to the Rosetta probe that landed on the asteroid. The legacy of the ESA is incredible. What do you think is going to be the, the big achievements for the agency going forward? Well, I think the big achievements uh, that we will see is uh, in the exploration domain, for sure, the, the ExoMars mission. And then we are also working together with our NASA colleagues on a Mars sample return mission. So imagine that for the first time, we can bring a sample back from Mars uh, to Earth, and it can be examined here on Earth and with all the technology, all the labs that we have here on Earth. It will be amazing. Uh, and certainly as well in, uh, as an astronaut, uh, I would hope that in the next decade I can see uh, one of the young astronauts that are currently in the European Astronaut Corps fly to the moon.
And your spacefaring days now over, are there any plans for you to go back up there? Well, I'm the, the head of the European Astronaut Corps uh, at this stage, so it's uh, up to the young guys to fly. Uh, unfortunately, I should say, or fortunately, it's now the, the next generation, of course, that, that is at the helm. But there are two great jobs in, uh, in the agency. The, the best job is being an astronaut. And the second best job is being the boss of the astronauts. <laughs> and I've been able to be, be both of them, so I cannot complain. Well, you're much younger than John Glenn was when he went up in the shuttle again, so I think there's still hope for you. Uh, in terms of this weekend, are you looking forward to anything? Are you planning on meeting any of the guests that are here? Are you just going to be manning the stall? Are you going to be able to partake in any of the things that are going on around you? Well, uh, first of all, it's uh, great to be here, uh, to be in the environment of all these uh, space enthusiasts. And uh, certainly I'm going to try to share my experience and, and uh, the future plans of ESA here on stage uh, in a short while uh, and share this with all the, the participants here uh, in, the, in the audience. And that for me is really the highlight. It's, it's part of our job. We have been very privileged that we could fly to space and it's now our job as well to share this experience with all the people around. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's Frank DeWin, the European Space Agency's head of the Astronaut Corps and former commander of the International Space Station, talking to Timon Singh of Bristol's The Cosmic Shed podcast at Destination Star Trek. And if you wanted to see the International Space Station, you could do tonight if the clouds disappear. Uh, at about 5.33, the International Space Station will pass over Bristol and large part of the world around us um, and you can look up I think if it's about 80 86 degrees uh, it, which is hmm, let me think if you hold your hand out in front of you um, and the horizon if your bottom of your fist is on the horizon the top is about 10 degrees you keep climbing up then you get to about 86 degrees that's where the International Space Station will be at its highest uh, it will come up at about 33 degrees above the west at about 5.33. If, it, if you don't catch it then, you get another chance 90 minutes later because that's how long it takes for the International Space Station to go around the Earth, which is pretty cool. And just to remind you, we heard from the former commander of the International Space Station right here on this station just a moment ago. Now, let's do some more science. The other thing that's been dominating the news recently is something called Brexit. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a story which has ca came up last week the global talent visa a new system to keep the UK and then it put this in inverted commas because it's a quote open to talented scientists it's been a concern I think for from the scientific community that Brexit might close the door to uh, all the collaborations that go on all the the brilliant scientists that come to these shores and all the funding that comes from the European Union to the UK science community. This is something that um, Dominic Cummings, I mean Boris Johnson has come up with uh, to sort of see it's a, a way of countering it, I suppose, a way of, of softening the blow perhaps. Yeah, or, mi mitigating the, uh, the downsides. Yeah. Had, either of you had a chance to have a look at this? Yeah, I mean, this is something that has popped up quite a lot in uh, conversations for me at work. So I'm, I'm doing a PhD. Um, so I work in academia every day and people doing PhDs, people um, who already have their PhDs, professors, uh, kind of people doing postdoctoral 
research associate kind of jobs. Um, we're all funded by various people. Um, and there's two things in that. A lot of people receive funding from the European Union in some shape or form. And a lot of the people I work with are European. So you can imagine the kind of pre- and post-Brexit anxiety around whether these kind of uh, labs will continue to receive funding and whether they'll continue to have uh, these amazing kind of scientists that have, you know, very well-trained people. Um, and this is the, the idea that they can kind of reassure, I guess, scientists uh, currently working in the UK uh, who are... EU or even world, in fact, they kind of they're not specifically talking about EU nationals, but um, kind of anyone from across the world. If they are a leading scientist, we will attract them to the UK because they're not going to cap visas for scientists, so there will be no limit to that, which is a good thing. Um, and there'll also be uh, certain research bodies in the UK, including the UKRI, which is the UK Research and Innovation Agency, um, and some other named. Um, kind of funding bodies will be able to nominate people as uh, kind of potential like visa holders so rather than the home office deciding you should oh uh, you want to apply for this job do you get your visa they will allow um, designated people within designated funding bodies to kind of say we, we need to employ this person give them a visa and they will more or less just do it so that's good however it does kind of introduce a sort of, um, I mean, if they're only allowing certain funding bodies to have that sort of ability to nominate people, then I don't really necessarily think that's fair because if you're funded by a smaller charity or a smaller research body, um, you might not have sort of this fast-track access to visas. Um, and also the criteria is just not very well defined at the moment. So they're saying they want to attract the, the world's leading scientists. Science... Uh, is a cooperative of mm. many, many different people from all over the world with different skill sets, with different levels of training um, on and off paper. So you know, experience as well as having degrees um, all the way from bachelor's degrees through to PhDs. Um, and I think trying to define what a scientist is on paper is a really difficult thing to do. Mm. Um, and, and also if they're looking to cap the salary uh, have a minimum salary that you are expected to have in order to be uh, given a fast-track visa, then that's also a problem because a lot of people working in science don't actually earn that much money. A lot of people think scientists are quite wealthy because perhaps we're you know, generally quite well-educated, but actually a lot of people working in science are paid kind of very moderate or, hmm. or even low sums of money. So if they are going to go with their kind of general, you must be earning over £30,000 a year to be classed as... Uh, a leading scientist and actually they're going to miss out a lot of people that could contribute very well mm. to our um our, the science community in the uk and um this also means you know the, if you want to kind of go work abroad for six months and come back is there going to there's going to be difficulties with that so uh yeah i could get down the rabbit hole on this one <laughs> yeah. it's one of those things that i think is a positive uh sign from the government however they have to follow through and they have to listen to the yes. science community. And if we're saying, no, these criteria aren't going to work, they have to understand that, you know, we probably know how it works a bit better than the government does in terms yeah. of, you know, getting funding, getting people, because um, science is a very open... Listening to the experts. Yeah. <laughs> Would have thought that would be a thing. Yeah. Well, we, we're, the people are sick of experts. No, um, no they're not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> I, I mean, my concern is that... Um, 
the government as it is, before they became the government as it is, put out um, requests for what people thought was important. And one of the things that people said was important was, of course, science research, because of course it is. And um, that what they've done is come up with a way of sort of making it look like Brexit isn't going to be a disaster for for science. And what they've actually proposed here might look okay on the surface, but if you're using phrases like world's leading scientists, it doesn't really mean anything, does it, in the science? No. And also, you know, they it's about more than just having kind of fast-track visas for those leading scientists. It's about creating a scientific sort of community, climate, workplace, and a country just society in general that actually actively welcomes people from all over the world um, to come and work here. So, you know, you might be the world's leading scientist and you might want to go and work at, I don't know, the Crick in London. Um, but if you just don't feel like the UK is the place for you for whatever reason, then you know, you're not going to come. So it extends kind of beyond we're going to give you a visa. You have to actually attract those people, make Britain seem like an amazing place to work, make it seem like a fair place to work, make it seem like a nice place to live and to raise your kids. Yeah as well as making it seem like one of the world's leading uh, countries in science. Um, there, there are too many elements to this to cover in, yes. in five minutes. But it's a positive sign, um, and I'm going to kind of, you know, keep an eye on it yeah. and hope that they listen to, you know, as they begin to implement these changes, they actually listen and get feedback from the community. Um, yeah. and hopefully they will mitigate any damage. But, well, I hope so. Know, well, oh, I mean, I, obviously, ideally, you wouldn't do something that caused damage deliberately. No. But they have done, so we have to try and mitigate against it. What a terrible thing that is for a government to do to the country it's supposed to be looking after. Anyway, let's talk about something else. Uh, pandas. Pandas! Pandas! Pandas have yeah. faces! <laughs> pandas have faces! Yeah, they do. Yeah, what do you mean? Is that, is, is that the this story? Is news. That pandas have faces. Yeah, pandas have faces. Um, I don't think there's a single person in the world that doesn't look at a panda and, and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly do. Um, if there are any pandas listening, we're laughing with you, not yeah, at you. Yeah, totally. If you've ever seen a you know baby or juvenile pandas pottering about, they are very entertaining. They're very clumsy. Um, and there's been a research study... Um, titled How Pandas Use Their Heads as a Kind of Extra Limb for Climbing. That sounds, sounds painful. Yeah, <laughs> although this resonated for me because the first thing I thought was that whenever I'm kind of going from, I don't know, my bedroom to the kitchen with, you know, a cup of tea in one hand and like, a book in the other, I always use my, like, face to turn the light off. I do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's basically what pandas are doing. It's They've it, got the hands full. It's, yeah, it's, oh. it's eye height anyway, the, the, the light yeah, switch. Exactly. <laughs> Just head so I always use the light my, my nose or my, my forehead <laughs> to turn the light off. Um, so pandas obviously aren't switching lights off. That would be mm. pretty cool. Hmm. but they are climbing trees to get to their food and uh, so a team of scientists have studied um, how pandas move and the kind of success rate of pandas climbing up different different types of trees so kind of narrow trees that are easy to wrap their hands around and bigger trees that are a bit more difficult to get purchase on um, and the ones that managed to successfully climb to the top to get to a platform which presumably had some food reward on it um, use their faces as a kind of extra limb four times more uh, often than the pandas which unsuccessfully mm. reach the top so basically because they've got quite short limbs and quite big bodies this creates a bit of a problem in terms of uh, kind of 
moving your arms yeah. around, pulling your big booty up there, and uh, pandas are quite chunky. Yeah. But, um, but it's just it's just another example of how certain species are. Uh, oh, we've got the sig. It's all right. Finish your thought. <laughs> well, I've got not, not got time now, but it's just that they're adapted to their environment. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> particular trees, particular shapes of trees, sizes yeah. of branches. Well, they eat something that's completely inefficient for their body, and they will never breed. So. Well, <laughs> thank you for joining us for another hour of science news here on Love and Science, and thank you to Josh and Lucy for joining me here in the studio. Thank you. Bye. 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 Have bye. a lovely evening, everybody. <laughs> is Bristol's BCFM on 93.2, online and on your mobile. BCFM is an award-winning community radio station for Bristol. Bringing you...